table, and people will be around to count to make sure that everybody's paid. Um, as you know, all of you have been here many times before. There's a 30-minute presentation, then 30 minutes for lunch, and 30 minutes for a question and answer period. So let me introduce our topic and the speaker for our topic. Today's topic is Judging Sexual Assault, Lessons from the Robin Camp Debacle. Debacle. Is the judiciary sexist? Should Robin Camp be removed from the bench? Is contrition enough? Some, there, these are some of the questions that have been raised in response to Justice Robin Camp's comments and his acquittal of the accused in the 2014 Crown versus Wager sexual assault case. Unfortunately, Robin Camp's commentary is not an isolated incident, nor is it unique in sexual assault cases in Canada. Instead, it underscores what has been characterized as a much broader crisis in confidence in the criminal justice process for survivors of sexual assault. Sexual violence is one of the most underreported forms of violence for a number of complex reasons. Commentators have identified Robin Camp's conduct as something that could be put and that could put an even more chilling effect on reporting and access to justice for those who have been assaulted. Without understanding the contextual and intersectional factors at play in this case, including presumptions about sexual availability of Indigenous women, substance abuse, poverty, and homelessness, it is not possible to understand the gravity of Justice Camp's commentary. The speaker will discuss two of the most poignant lessons that can be learned from this case. One, the insights that, that it provides into the many barriers to access to justice for survivors in sexual assault cases. And two, the need for due diligence on the bench. The speaker today is Dr. Carolyn Hodes. Dr. Carolyn Hodes joined the University of Lethbridge in the Department of Women and Gender Studies in 2015. Prior to, appointment, to her appointment at Lethbridge, she taught at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Kingston and in Sociology at Trent University's Oshawa campus. Dr. Hodes received her PhD from York University in 2013. Her doctoral research was funded by the Helena Orton Memorial Fund and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Dr. Hodes' research interests include human rights and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms Canadian and U.S. feminist constitutionalism, and she is, has recently won a ULRF grant to fund her current work on representations of the body in charter equality rights and Section 35 Aboriginal rights litigation. Her forthcoming publication in Atlantis, Critical Studies in Gender, Cultural and Culture and Social Justice is entitled Intersectionality in Canadian Courts in Search of a Decolonial Politics of Possibility and traces the limitations of the grounds approach in, char in Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms Equality Rights Cases. I'd like to present to you Dr. Carolyn Hodes. Thank you very much for that um, introduction and thank you to Annalise and and Knud and all the volunteers at SACPA for asking me to come here and speak to you today about this complex case. And thank you to Heather for uh, moderating the discussion and for Country Kitchen for, for catering this, this event. Uh, when I was first asked to give this presentation, I was asked to entitle it, Is the Judiciary Sexist? 
And indeed, this is one of the questions that was implied by media accounts after the Robin Camp story broke, and people began to take notice of his commentary and questions from the bench in the 2014 sexual assault trial that earned him his notoriety. People are currently engaging in a similar line of question with regard to electoral politics in the wake of the most recent US election that resulted in Donald Trump's victory as the newest president-elect of the United States. Aside from his litany of viscerally sexist and racist statements on the campaign trail, recent media reports outline that he is himself under investigation for the sexual assault of, at last count, at least 12 different women. The messages that have been traveling across social media include images and tweets that say things like, tell me again how accusations of sexual assault can ruin a man's career. This has been done in an effort to draw a connection between these sexual assault charges and the defenses that have been brought forward by a number of young men on college campuses, like the now infamous Brock Turner, whose father wrote a letter to the judge in that case that articulated, and I quote, his life will never be the one that he dreamed about and worked so hard to achieve. That is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20 plus years of life. The 20 minutes of action that Turner's father was referring to is the brutal sexual assault of an unconscious woman in an alleyway for which he was found guilty after two men reportedly had to physically restrain him for fear that even though they were looking on, he would continue with the assault. He was found guilty and sentenced to six months in jail with three years probation, and he only served three of them. I draw your attention to these incidents across the border because my own attention has been captivated by the high levels of Canadian exceptionalism that have traveled across the news media and social media in the wake of the US election. It would seem that there is a widespread misconception that in Canada, sexism, sexual violence, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, racism, racially motivated violence, Islamophobia, ableism, the list could go on that they either simply do not exist here or are somehow less pronounced. And this was particularly evident in the almost viral sharing of an image of Canada's immigration website insinuating that it had crashed because so many Americans wanted to move here after the election. Well, in my talk today, I'm hoping that you will all be able to see beyond this mythology, because sadly for everybody, there is indeed racism, sexism, Islamophobia, ableism, anti-Semitism, classism, homophobia, and misogyny, among many other forms of discrimination and violence, right here in Canada, and Canadian institutions are certainly no exception. In fact, one of the unreported parts of Justice Camp's commentary is along the lines of what I've just described to you. In the face of one of the Crown Attorney's many objections to the defense attorney's line of questioning in the sexual assault case, Justice Camp expressly stated, Mr. Flynn has a very difficult job. The future of a young man depends on him doing his job properly. So to return to the subject of my talk, Justice Camp's commentary from the bench, barriers to access to justice for those who've been sexually assaulted, the introduction of certain kinds of prejudicial evidence during the trial, and the intersectional failures of the courts, these are all unfortunate indicators that both discrimination and violence are alive and well in Canada. The first thing that I wanna to talk to you about today is not what Justice Camp said, 
The media reports have already covered this extensively. Instead, I want to begin by pointing out that both his commentary and his questions to the woman who had suffered the assault are not isolated incidents in the context of judicial reasoning more broadly. They are merely, as one of my first year students so astutely put it when I was teaching the violence triangle that I have up on the slide here, the tip of the iceberg. But this is not the same iceberg that many of the media reports that have been recently invoking this metaphor since Justice Camp went under review are talking about. While it is true that this is not an isolated incident among the judiciary, particularly in Alberta, and this is something that I'm going to be getting at a little bit later in this talk, the iceberg that I'm talking about here speaks more directly to the social, institutional, and cultural contexts that make some people more vulnerable to violence and others more likely to perpetrate. It. Today I'm using Johann Galtung's violence triangle to draw out the complexity of this case. Galtung is often credited with being the founder of an area of research called peace and conflict studies, and this triangle has been reinvented and recreated by a number of grassroots anti-violence organizations to explain the combination of social factors that contribute to cultures of violence that are marked by impunity, including the rape cultures that exist in a variety of settings like courtrooms, classrooms, and university campuses. Both the sexual assault and the commentary from the bench make up part of what is referred to in this model as the direct and visible forms of violence that are the obvious forms of violence at issue in this complex case. But in order for this kind of violence to take place, there's a whole lot of less visible violence that sometimes remains invisible violence to those who do not have to face it routinely as a matter of course in their own lives. The ability to not see this kind of violence is what is referred to as privilege. Responses to disclosures that, you know, that say things like, oh, well, this has never happened to me, or I can't believe that this could happen here, are an exercise of that kind of privilege. Returning to the media's recent rendition of the iceberg metaphor, this is also not the first time that something like this has ever happened within the judiciary. I invite you all to remember, or if you have not yet learned about this case, to take notice of the late Alberta judge John Buzz McClung's commentary from the bench in The Crown and Ewan Chuck. He earned the dubious title of the Bonnets and Crinolines judge for the following passage located on page 245 of his reasons for those who are interested in looking it up. And I quote, it must be pointed out that the complainant did not present herself to Ewanchuk or enter his trailer in a bonnet or crinolines. He then further noted that the complainant was, and I quote, the mother of a six-year-old baby and that along with her boyfriend, she earned an apartment or she shared an apartment, rather, with another couple. In 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada established that based on these comments, and I quote, an appellate court judge helped reinforce the myth that under such circumstances, either the complainant is less worthy of belief, she invited the sexual assault, or her sexual experience signals probable consent to future sexual activity. In a unanimous decision, all nine judges sitting on the Supreme Court ruled that Justice McClung had erroneously applied the 
defense of implied consent, and in the interests of justice for the woman who had been lured into you and Chuck's trailer and assaulted under the pretext of having been invited there for a job interview, they did not actually order a retrial in that case, but rather invoked their jurisdictional authority provided to them under section 686, subsection 4 of the Criminal Code of Canada to enter conviction against the accused in that case. This is why I decided not to entitle this talk I'm giving you here today, Is the Judiciary Sexist? But to entitle it instead, Judging Sexual Assault, Lessons from the Robin Camp Debacle. Not all judges reproduce these myths, and some of them actually actively work to circumvent them, as Justice Claire de Redubé expressly did in the context of the Crown and Ewan Chuck. John McClung and Justice Camp, however, are not alone. Manitoba judge Justice Robert Duar was also brought under review by the Canadian Judicial Council for claiming that, and I quote, sex was in the air, and awarding a two-year conditional sentence to an accused that he referred to as a, and I quote, clumsy Don Juan in order to spare him jail time in 2011. Two more Alberta judges were also brought under review this year for similar kinds of statements to those made by Justice Camp. The first was Justice Pat McGillarkey, who in 2015 acquitted a 16-year-old boy who had been accused of sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl, claiming in his decision that because she did not scream or run for help, she had not been assaulted. Judge Michael Severin acquitted a 15-year-old boy who grabbed the breasts and buttocks of a 15-year-old girl, and he wrote that because she tried to laugh it off, she hadn't successfully communicated her discomfort. And if that were not enough, in October, criticisms were leveled at one of the new Supreme Court nominees for his failure to order a retrial in a sexual assault case where he himself had acknowledged that the evidence not only contravened the rape shield laws that are supposed to keep prior sexual history out of court, but that that evidence was introduced purely to humiliate and degrade the complainant. So Justice Camp's unfortunate perpetuation of rape myths and cultures of impunity is certainly not an isolated incident among the judiciary, and accusations that judges don't go far enough in their judgments in terms of sentencing or the retrial of sexual assault are also many. This is not, however, a case of a few bad apples. This is instead part of what this model of violence that I'm using here calls cultural violence. Cultural violence takes place routinely in the broader cultural enclaves that make up the society that we all have a hand in creating together. These discriminatory belief systems directly contradict both qualitative and quantitative data that refute every single one of them. For instance, Justice McClung's presumption that the woman who had been assaulted by Ewanchuk wanted to be assaulted because of what she was wearing plays into stereotypical assumptions about dress that have absolutely no place in a courtroom or anywhere else for that matter. While there are a variety of sexual preferences out there, some of which do involve dressing up, what differentiates sexual assault, sexual violence from sexual preference is consent. If one or any of the parties to the sexual activity are not consenting, no matter anybody, what anybody's wearing or what anybody wants to do to anyone else or what the nature of anyone's relationship with anyone else is, it is sexual assault. 
The judge in the famous Jane Doe case, where Jane Doe sued the Metropolitan Toronto Police for setting her up, and by extension, all the women in her neighborhood, as bait for a perpetrator of violence who was known to them as the balcony rapist, Justice McFarland rightly characterized sexual assault as, and I quote, an act of power and control rather than a sexual act. It has to do with perpetrators' desire to terrorize, to dominate, to control, to humiliate. It is a non-consensual act of hostility and aggression. And because it disproportionately affects people who identify as women, whether they are cisgendered or transgendered, it has been repeatedly characterized as a method of social control over women. While it is true that the data on rates of sexual violence is limited due to widespread underreporting, according to police-reported data in 2012, there are over 21,900 incidents of sexual assault in Canada, and over 90% of those who were assaulted identified as women. In nearly all incidents of sexual violence against women, the accused perpetrator was identified as male, and that number is 99%. According to 2007 police-reported data, in all cases of reported sexual assault, including the sexual assault of men and boys, 97% of the accused identified as men. According to the 2015 Status of Women Canada issue brief that paints a statistical picture of sexual assault across Canada, this gender disparity holds true in every province and territory, and provincial rates of police-reported sexual offenses against women are elevated in the western provinces with the highest rates in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. This is followed by Alberta and British Columbia. Sexual violence is therefore a form of gender-based violence. But it is not only about men and women, and it's not only about gender. Racialized and Indigenous women are more vulnerable to this kind of violence, as are women with disabilities. And sexual violence is often perpetrated against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, non-gender conforming, and two-spirit people as a form of gender bashing. Gender bashing is a kind of violence meted out against those whose real or imputed sexualities or gender identities are seen to disrupt normative binary gender orders that privilege monogamous heteronormative relationships and stereotypical behaviors associated with white masculinity and femininity. So sexual violence is not just about gender. It is therefore about how gender performance is racialized and the multiple ways that sexuality and gender identity are policed in different social contexts. Feminist lawyers and legal scholars have long pointed out that women who do not play the stereotype of the ideal victim, who are angry in court, who are deemed to be too aggressive, are not considered to be believable witnesses. This comes from widespread sexist beliefs that women ought to be nice, agreeable, and preserve relationships at all costs. This set of beliefs is also racialized and classed insofar as it holds stereotypes of white, Anglo, middle-class, female respectability as the conduct against which all women are measured. As part of my training with police victim services and peer counseling in the greater Toronto area, I was told that anger is actually a healthy response to violence and injustice. 
and I invite counselors and mental health practitioners to correct me on this one if I'm wrong. But from what I was told, those who internalize their anger often become depressed, self-blaming, and suicidal. So if this is true, the widespread denial of women's anger, the requirement for women and girls not to feel or express their anger, the expectation that women and girls internalize and self-blame to not risk being aggressive are other ways to support rape cultures and cultures of impunity when they reach their logical conclusion, result in premature death, whether as a result of coping strategies that involve self-harm or depression following sexual assault. This set of presumptions about women's conduct also often results in the criminalization of those women who do not or cannot play by these gendered rules of polite decorum. And this is exactly what happened to the woman who was called as a witness in Robin Camp's courtroom. If you read the trial transcripts of this case, there are places where she became agitated in her testimony, and one might say angry at Camps and the defense attorney's line of questioning, and rightly so. Instead of hearing her out, she was at times interrupted and asked if she wanted to take a break, and on one occasion, she self-corrected to continue the questioning. At another point in the questioning, the defense attorney introduced evidence of her toughness as somebody who had lived on the street. She identifies as Cree, and at the time of her assault, she was homeless. The defense introduced this line of questioning to show that she had taken care of herself in other situations and to insinuate that if she had not wanted the accused to attack her, she had the physical ability, the street smarts, and the requisite aggression to have fended him off in spite of the fact that in other testimony it had been pointed out that she weighed approximately 100 pounds in comparison to what was estimated to her attacker's approximate 240. In this context, stereotypes about racialized, economically disadvantaged women informed how the witness was being framed through the line of questioning. And my question to you, the audience, is what could this possibly have had to do with her sexual assault? The Crown attorney objected to this line of questioning a number of times, but I'm going to return to that later on in the context of the rules and the rules about how to interpret the rules when I talk about structural violence. Both of these points in the trial reproduce one of the most pernicious myths in the long list of rape myths that inform the commentary of many of the judges whose cases I've mentioned earlier. Sexual assault is a form of violence, whether or not physical resistance or injury occurs. Many people who are attacked are so shocked by what's happening to them, they simply freeze. They are also often too intimidated or afraid to try to defend themselves. Those who are being assaulted may also decide that the overwhelming strength and size of the attacker puts them in danger of further harm, putting their lives further at risk. In certain situations, the assault may be the result of coercion, threats to third parties like friends, pets, or children, or as a result of other forms of verbal manipulation. And finally, the person who's being assaulted may believe that they ought to go through the ordeal without resistance for fear of other forms of retaliation in the future. The expectation of violent self-defense has long been identified as a gendered expectation based on a male model and also based on sexist beliefs surrounding the physical standards that are commonly associated with self-defense as a means to protect one's virtue. 
And this, again, is based on another stereotype of white, Anglo, middle-class respectability, conduct, and decorum that is often, in these kinds of cases, used as the norm against which everyone else is measured. The contradictory message is, be aggressive and angry and fight to the death, but in every other aspect of your life, you must be virtuous, kind, passive, and accommodating. Camp's commentary in this line of questioning, along with the commentary of the other judges that I've drawn your attention to, might lead you to the conclusion that yes, not only is the judiciary sexist, but so is the entire criminal justice system. But as can also be seen from the Supreme Court ruling in Ewanchuk, the ruling in Jane Doe's case, and the Crown Attorney's objections to this line of questioning in this case, although the structural violence of law has been well documented and is something that I write about all the time, it's something that I'm also going to be discussing in more detail later on. Not all individual judges and lawyers, for that matter, support or maintain it. So is the judiciary sexist? Well, it's complicated. The answer is yes and no at the same time. Yes, to the extent that individual judges use their authority in the legal rules to perpetuate rape cultures and cultures of impunity, racialized and gender-based inequality, and racialized and gender-based violence, including sexual assault, whether they are conscious of what they are doing or not. Yes, to the extent that the legal rules themselves, the criminal justice system, and the procedures that people are expected to follow allow for the perpetuation of rape myths, stereotypes, the denial of women's anger through an overemphasis on witness demeanor, and both systemic and structural inequity. But the answer is also, and some of you may be surprised, also no. No to the extent that some judges, even if you think they might be outnumbered, consciously refuse to use the rules and their authority to perpetuate cultures of impunity, racialized gender-based inequality, and racialized gender-based violence, including sexual assault. And no to the extent that the rules, the criminal justice system, and the procedures that people are expected to follow have been and can continue to be changed to explicitly prevent the perpetuation of rape myths, stereotypes, the denial of women's anger through an overemphasis on witness demeanor, and both systemic and structural inequity. So before I get into what I mean by structural violence, I'm going to dwell a little bit on this word change for a moment. These changes to the rules and the institution of judging are often the product of feminist activism and interventions in court cases. One of the briefs presented in Camp's hearing actually traces these interventions from the 1970s, although feminist activists and advocates have been fighting for change for a lot longer than that. The very rules that Justice Camp and the defense attorney ignored in this case were actually the result of changes that took place in the 1980s because of concerns that the introduction of the complainant's prior sexual history or the complainant's personal records, things like records of psychiatric treatment, school transcripts, medical records, employment records, might lead judges and juries in the case of indictable offenses of sexual assault to reach prejudicial conclusions about the credibility of complainants. The new rules came to force in 1982, and they're known as the Rape Shield Laws. They were the product of feminist activism and introduced to circumvent exactly these kinds of outcomes that happened in the Camp case. Prior to the enactment of these rules, anything could be introduced as evidence to play on these kinds of prejudices, 
But, and the double standard was, any evidence of the accused's prior history of sexual violence was to be excluded to protect their right to a fair trial. These changes to the criminal code didn't last long, unfortunately, in their original incarnation. In 1991, the Supreme Court ruled that the rape shield laws were too restrictive on the kinds of defenses that could be brought in to support the accused. And I invite you to read The Crown and Seaboyer if you're interested in their reasoning. As a result, the rules were changed again to allow this kind of evidence to be introduced, but only after following a correct procedure. The new rules have been highly criticized, but as they exist, they do have certain requirements that were, in this case, completely ignored, and not just by Justice Camp. The defense attorney introduced evidence that should have been introduced under these rules, and the Crown repeatedly brought this up in her many objections in the context of this case. Referring back to the racialized and classist presumptions inherent in the line of questioning that elicited evidence pointing to the complainant's ability to take care of herself, I want to talk a little bit about the details of this evidence. So you're gonna have to follow the logic here is quite extraordinary. The defense attorney referred to the people that the witness had allegedly fended off as suitors. As a result, he deliberately introduced evidence that alluded to past sexual conduct, but justified his decision, and here's where it gets a little complicated, to do this because he claimed he wasn't referring to sex acts, but talk, and specifically talk, that was geared to the refusal of sex acts. In doing this, this line of questioning implied that violent sexual assault and unwanted sexual advances are somehow part of some sort of courting ritual. And despite the Crown attorney's objection, Justice Camp ruled that this evidence was admissible because it constituted similar fact evidence. And he went further to say that the Crown attorney was responsible for opening this door by bringing up the fact that the accused weighed more than twice the amount of the woman he was accused of assaulting. The problem with this line of reasoning is that there is nothing similar about these two pieces of evidence. Saying no to a date or a hookup is not the same as evidence that would point to her ability to fight off attackers. And if she even had a history of fighting off violent attackers, what bearing could this possibly have on her experience in this context? This brings me to the next thing I want to talk to you about today, and this is the fact that questions and commentary that were made in the context of this case are not the result of Justice Camp's reasoning alone, although they are the result of what he himself acknowledged as his poor use of dis judicial discretion. In allowing the defense to introduce this evidence, Justice Camp allowed the defense to lay the foundation for the kind of questions and comments that he would be later asking the witness in the context of the case. The objections of the Crown Attorney were clear. She drew attention to the fact that the defense was deliberately flouting the rules of evidence, and in particular, the rules outlined by Section 276 of the Criminal Code. Justice Camp's commentary must therefore be taken in the context of how the case was playing out, what kinds of evidence were being introduced, and what kind of framework the judge was using to weigh the rights of the accused against the rights of the complainant. In this case, the judge used a formal equality framework where the size and physical strength of the accused was deemed to be the same kind of evidence as the ability of the complainant to say no to what were called suitors. So one of my central questions is, is, as the Crown rightly pointed out many times at trial, weren't the procedures outlined on the rape shield, why weren't they followed in this case? 
How can it be possibly be the case that the rape shield laws preclude excluding prejudicial evidence that might lead to the conclusion that complainants are to be discredited if it can be shown that they've had said no to sexual activity in the past? If this is the case, these rules clearly need to change. This reflects the deeply entrenched sets of sexist contradictions that accompany many of the myths surrounding sexual violence. People often mistakenly believe that if someone didn't say no, they were somehow saying yes, and people also believe that if someone says no, they may be playing hard to get and actually means yes. This is why many feminist anti-violence advocates engage in no means no and yes means yes campaigns. But this case takes these mythologies a step further. For the defense, if she did not say no, if she said no, she did or did not say no at any time in the past and did not end up having sex, the assumption is that because she could allegedly prevent a sexual assault by saying no, this means that every sexual encounter she engaged in at any time in the future is considered to be consensual, irrespective of what she does or does not say. Not only did the complainant say no in the past, she also said no during her attack, and she testified at length to that fact in addition to identifying herself as someone who is not interested in having sex with men. And according to the defense in this case, not only did no mean yes in the present, but if we follow this incredible feat of logic, this defense implies that no in the past means yes every time you say no in the future. I have one more point that I'd like to make. So this is what I understand to be an intersectional analysis. There are a lot of different interpretations of intersectionality, but I'm a particular fan of Kimberly Crenshaw's 2016 of articulation of it when she spoke at the Women of the World Conference. I've interpreted it to mean that discrimination and violence are experienced by each person in a qualitatively different way given the context of each case. What this means is these kinds of events cannot be measured as more or less or pit against each other in a hierarchy of oppression. The goal is absolutely not a quantification of any one individual or group's pain. Even so, this does not mean that pre-existing legal and social structures suddenly cease to exist. The penalties and privileges are not meted out unequally according to the inequality that pre-exists our entry into the world. I meant to say they are meted out in, in unequally, actually. We live in a settler colonial society that is marked by colonial laws and legislation, that is marked by slavery, that is marked by gross inequalities of wealth and power. And as such, all of our institutions have been forged in this crucible. This is what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission draws our attention to. So it is only through an intersectional lens that we can begin to understand how the defense attorney in this case could bring up evidence of prior history without submitting an application under section 276 of the Criminal Code of Canada. Would he have been able to draw on the same line of questioning had the women who had been assaulted been upper middle class, homeful, or white enough? It is only through an intersectional analysis that we can begin to understand how Justice Camp could so readily accept the introduction of this evidence as similar fact through his routine dismissals of the Crown Attorney's objections in this case. And it is only through an intersectional analysis that we can truly understand the barriers to access to justice for women who have experienced sexual violence. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Hodes. So, thank you, Shaw, for being here. And um, I remind you that Shaw TV broadcasts our SACPA sessions at 2 and 10 p.m. and later makes them available to you on YouTube for your viewing. Um, CKXU and Radio 88.3 and other media also covers SACPA events. I'd like to thank Country Kitchen Catering for their friendly service and the University of Lethbridge for their ongoing support of SACPA events. I encourage you now to discuss this very um, complex topic over your lunch and um, the moderator will entertain your questions after, uh, after lunch. 